Welcome to episode 181 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Yeah, it is. Hey, brother. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing. Wow. Your enthusiasm right there. (laughs) We don't usually have a lot of enthusiasm on the how are you, but I'm having a great day already. I love that. You know, it's funny. It's interesting you bring that up because just recently I was going back and listening to some of the prolific catalog that we've have now. And these were like, I don't know what range of episodes, but they were back a ways. And I realized, man, could I sound less excited to say the intro in some of those early episodes? Like it sounded like I was about to get a root canal. So I yeah. appreciate your enthusiasm because we need a little enthusiasm apparently in our voices. We we yeah. are more excited than we sound. I promise. Yeah. You know, honestly, like it's, this is maybe more of a indictment on me than anything else, but, um, like seeing my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, even though it was through a virtual feed, like I didn't realize how much that like energized me to sort of have that time to see them, to to worship with them. Uh, granted, not in ideal circumstances and not in a way that actually replaces in any real sense the gathering of the saints, the physical gathering of the saints. But where the indictment comes in is why am I not that energized and excited to see them every week? Like every week when we come together, it should be this energizing moment. And yeah, yeah, I guess that's a free uh, self-denial there. Not (laughs) self-denial in the positive, take up your cross way, but self-denial in the I'm a wretched sinner and I still have a long ways to go way. (laughs) You know, so much of our podcast, somebody should quantify this for us. So much of it is us just giving disclaimers. Like we're so reformed that every time we mention some kind of like virtual expression of people gathering, they should just come with a stamp that says not real church. Yeah. Just so you know, we distinguish. uh, That's another thing to get tattooed somewhere on my body. (laughs) I feel like we distinguish should go on, on the butt cheek. (laughs) I feel like that's the appropriate place since most of the time when you say we distinguish, it's the equivalent of mooning someone on the internet. Yeah. Is that the reformed version of like actually? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like when someone th- this is the way it plays out in the reform pub. You're not in the reform pub, so you wouldn't see this. And our group has not risen to this level yet. Uh somebody will put a poll up, a poll up. Uh that I almost said poll up. Pull up. Anyway, um would will put a poll up in the group that has like very straightforward questions, you know, uh hey Baptists, uh can you select one of these? I'm trying to get a feel for what Baptists believe and I'll have like three or four options. And there's always somebody that's like, and usually it's me, so I'm not really coming down too hard on people. There's always somebody that's like, yeah, your question is not sufficiently nuanced for me to answer. <laughs> or your, the options you've provided are not sufficiently nuanced. So most of the time now someone puts up a poll. It also has a, an option that says not sufficiently nuanced. Please see comments. That's hilarious. We distinguish. That's hilarious. Now, I already have high expectations for the people listening to this episode that they will quickly and efficiently produce a meme around the theme we distinguish. I'm waiting for it now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is that neckbeard meme that like the the guy who is like standing by himself and he's like, and then I said and some like stereotypical thing. And then it, it like shows the picture and he's standing all by himself. And there's a group of people like happy and smiling off by themselves like they clearly have just ditched him. That's the equivalent of the reformed world, I think. Like wow, the whole this... world has just ditched the reform world. This is great podcasting yeah. at its finest. Tony and Jesse describe memes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's get into it. What, what are you affirming today, Jesse? This week, I'm going to go with a totally new affirmation that popped into my life because isn't everybody just exploring every corner of the internet these days? Because mm-hmm. it's not, I kind of re- rebel or push against this idea that maybe people have more time if you're in quarantine. And I think really being in quarantine, being able to stay home, like what a blessing that is, honestly. Yeah. For lots of reasons. But I know that there's a lot of people saying like, oh, we have so much time and we can do so many different things, explore many different things. I haven't yet really discovered that. I don't know where all this time is hiding, but it's not in my house. I haven't found it yet. So one of the things though that somebody, or I just came across on the internet that I thought is like, just kind of fun and a good way to, man, in a faux way, kind of get outside and also just remember that there are places that are not here is apparently there's just so many amazing live streams of national parks. And the one that I've been enjoying 
is if you go to explore.org backslash live cams backslash African dash wildlife. So that's a mouthful. I've been enjoying this Tembe elephant park in a South Africa. And the thing about this that I love is one, it's super awesome just because like it's live footage of elephants chilling, which is, is fantastic. But the cameras are not passive. I'm not sure exactly how this works. So they are managed or motion sensor oriented, but they also zoom in and out. So I'm not sure how that works. But yeah. it's not just that they're you're getting kind of just a static closed like circuit like image or a particular place. They move around, they're looking at the elephants. And there's also a live feed that gives you sound. So even if you just have this up in the background, you just hear like a live chirping of birds and like the soft rustle of a breeze through grass. And then just to flip back to it and to see elephants, like I'm watching an elephant right now, just enjoying a snack. It's a really yeah. amazing thing. And so to get out of your own space in your head and to see some of God's creation in a way that's absolutely breathtaking and yet doesn't require you to go anywhere except to your computer is an amazing thing. So explore.org backslash live cams, all kinds of good stuff. Nice. You ready for me to get super nerdy theological on that? I would, do we do any other way? Like I, no. this was a pure setup for you to do that. So everything is a pure setup for me to do that. So um, <laughs> exactly. I walked outside this morning to walk the dog. You know, it was like, I don't know, like nine thirty, uh, nine o'clock ish. And what I've noticed is there are bird calls and animal noises that I have not previously noticed in our area. And one of the things that I've learned, you know, just reading online there are there are species of animals that are returning to places that they have not been seen in for a while because the people aren't there anymore. Right. Like, I've heard about like, this. Like areas of the city, if you think of like New York City, like this is a stark example, but like Times Square is usually full of people and now it's basically empty. So like animals that normally would flee from the presence of humans are starting to like flock back to where where they would be by nature. And where this gets theological is how quickly does this fleeting sense of dominion that we have over nature, like like the 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 cultural mandate to take dominion over the world, like that's a common grace activity that that we still take part in. Like that's part of being human is we cultivate and take command and dominion over nature. But how quickly after we've left those areas, even for just like a couple weeks in some cases, the animals just take right back over, and and it just it reminded me like. Yeah, the world is just going to go on and, you know, God, God's creation is going to do what it does. And if we don't do what we're supposed to do or if we're absent from a, a place that we're supposed to be, like the progress that we've made or the activity that we've done, it, it kind of just reverses itself almost instantly. It's really kind of humbling. I thought you were going to bring up that example. I think it's somewhere in it's definitely in Europe. It might be like in the Netherlands, though, that town that was like getting overrun by like wild goats because oh. same, same reason like the goats are just showing up now and they're getting feisty because yeah. nobody's around. There's a spot in Thailand where all of the monkeys oh, get fed yes. by the tourists. I saw that. And now there's like, like gang wars of the monkeys <laughs> because normally there's no food scarcity because the tourists feed them, but now there's right. food scarcity. And so like the monkeys are forming these like roaming bands of gangs and they're fighting each other. It's crazy. You know, the other thing, let me get uh, super nerdy theological for a second. The other <clears throat> thing do. that this was making me think about was just the extensiveness and the nuance of the dominoes that are falling. So here's an idea where human beings, like you said, like to think that we have like a, a profound sense of dominion understanding over everything that's happening in the world. And I'd say that, that sometimes happens more with non-believers than with believers. There's a healthy respect for and fear for God in the fact that he remains in his superintending will, control of all things and knows all things to a degree that we cannot possibly comprehend or aspire to. But what I've been just shocked by is this reminder that here we have like a, a virus that we're, we're talking basically about a virus jumping from an animal to a human and causing like a, a mass sense of impact across the entire world. But that impact is happening in such a derivative way. We're talking like 50, 60, a hundred steps removed from just the virus itself where people are not even realizing until it happens like, Oh yeah, that's going to have an impact on this particular thing. 
And the monkey thing is one of those things for me. It's just kind of like this idea that only God has a kind of comprehensive knowledge in his omnipotence that he can actually understand everything that's happening. And so this is why we run to him and cling to him in these times. It's because we can't possibly conceive of every eventuality. And I think this this uh, virus is focusing our minds in that direction, at least. That there's so yeah. much that we cannot possibly come to understand or foresee that it just boggles the mind. And the monkey thing is random and yet like a legitimate yeah. thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. So what about you? What are you affirm assuming like it would be amazing if you were like, I stole your affirmation. You were also looking at like <laughs> I've I've moved on to a Tao water hole right now and it nice. is amazing. I'm I'm seeing some African mountains in the distance. I'm hearing some gentle, pleasant bird noises while we talk. So I've moved on to that, but it would be incredible if you were like, ah, oh, you stole my affirmation. So what do you got? Not this time. No, I I'm affirming an oldie but a goodie. So <clears throat> I have experienced this seemingly increase in time. And for me, I attribute it to the fact that I commute 35 to 45 minutes every morning uh, to get to work and then back. So at a bare minimum, I've gained, if I don't have to go into the office, I've gained an hour and a half of my day back. Um, the other thing that I personally have noticed is um, the things that used to like fill up my time, like stupid, mindless stuff that would fill up my time, like scrolling through Facebook endlessly, because it's just an endless stream of coronavirus updates. I don't spend nearly as much time looking at Facebook. So that, that time wasted has been filled up with other things. And one of the things that has been filled up with that I'm affirming is John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Man, this book is so stinking good. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know why I don't remember it, but every time I pick it up to read it, I'm like, man, this is so good. And today I was reading in uh, book one, chapter 11 is Calvin's argument against the use of images, either in worship or just images of God in general. Right. So sometimes you'll hear people and R.C. Sproul uh, did this who would argue that Calvin wasn't actually against images unless they were used in worship, which is just uh, it's just totally ignorant yeah, of the reality. Crazy. But what's funny, and I was talking to some of the other, uh, some of the reform pub admins this morning, it's like he's responding to the stereotypical, uh, I'm starting to call them re-evangelicals, like reformed evangelicals, like that category of people that sort of utilize the reformed moniker, but really are just kind of like five-point tulipists, tulipists, tulipists. Ooh, I thought that was another, another point, one. man, too. Five-point five point tulipists. I like that. Uh, who have kind of adopted Calvinistic soteriology, but not really like everything that Reformed theology entails. And it's like he's going down a bullet point list of all of the responses we hear when we try to say, like, God really, really forbids images of all kinds, even if you're not using the worship. So it's like in one point, he's like, well, some people say that images are the books of the unlearned. And he's like, yeah, that's just a defect in the one trying to teach. If you can't teach from the word without using images, then you're just a bad teacher. Right. You should be a better teacher. And then he's like, <clears throat> some people say, well, we're not really worshiping the images. We're just worshiping what the image signifies. He's like, yeah, well, if you attach the divine name to something that's not divine, then you're automatically granting it divine honor and also representing God falsely. So like, all of this work that we do, um, you know, we've done episodes on images of Christ. We've done episodes that touch on the, the second commandment involving the regulative worship. All this work we do to justify and argue against the use of images. Calvin was all over that in the Reformation. And, and you know, it's not necessarily true that Calvin is kind of the fountainhead of Reformed theology. There's people before him that, that we would probably look at and say, hold Reformed theology. There were people after him who had more influence in his day than he did, who also held to Reformed theology. But Calvin is kind of the person that everyone recognizes as more or less a uh, kind of a codification of reform thought. Right. And it's right there, right in the beginning of his book. And this is the funniest part that the quote out of Calvin, where he says that the human heart is a factory of idols, right? Reformed evangelicals love that quote. They absolutely love that quote. The funniest part is that what he's talking about is the propensity of people to make images of God, which are by definition, false idols. Right. So the same people that want to say in a certain sense, Calvin was fine with images as long as you're not worshiping. They also will placard that quote all over the place, not realizing 
Calvin himself would condemn their use of images. So, you know, every time that I look at Calvin, I'm just impressed by like, man, we really don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like if if no reformed author ever wrote another book and all we had was the the classic reform sources from the 15th, 16th and 17th century, we would have enough. Like that doesn't mean we should stop studying and stop reading and stop writing. But if that's all we had theologically was, you know, Calvin's Institutes, the Westminster Confession and the three forms of unity, we don't really need a lot more than that in terms of theological reflection. Right. Again, I know that what you're saying is you're including 1689 Baptist Confession there. So I'm I'm with you, but Eh. (laughs) (laughs) that was the best response. (laughs) This is actually like, I suppose. This is like the episode of like pure joy, like your joy when you just said this book is so good. It was so palpable. And, and I agree with you. I, I hope that people don't, when they see like the size of that tome or they think about that work, that they don't feel that it's inapproachable. And I'm guessing you would agree with me on this. Like yeah. just pick up a copy and hold it as a reference material. If only that, like you don't have to read the whole thing. But no doubt, if you just jump into it and take a look at the index and, and pick a topic that you think, you know what, this interests me, and read some of that, you're going to be amazingly blessed because yeah. Calvin, like we talked about with Reformed Preaching in that whole series, I mean, he was intensely practical. I mean, that book is actually really pastoral. It's not just meant yeah. to be this idea of like the arm, armchair theologian, like sitting on a deck, sipping a you know latte and, and trying to pontificate. All this was meant to really bring us to like doxology and obedience. And I actually think that this is one of those areas where many Christians feel like there really isn't a hill to die on. There's no line to draw with respect to the images. I think there is. And the more that I've grown and tried to understand how this impacts my worship, I've come to understand that it can be incredibly detrimental to your worship. And so I think that 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 portion in particular is really worth reading, if only because have a debate with yourself. Like, especially if you're on the other side of this and you think, you know what, the the use of images in any kind of way, even a kind of what we might call quote unquote innocuous use of images is completely that innocuous. I would challenge you to read that section and make sure that that commitment that you have and that conviction is actually grounded in scripture and not just this kind of extra biblical sense that, well, it's not really that harmful. We need to ask, why do we say that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... you can get all sorts of read through the institutes in a year uh, plans, just like you would do with the Bible. And the institutes is not actually much longer than than the Bible. So if you were to read 10 to 15 minutes a day for an entire year, you'd get through it pretty easily. Um, and most of the time, at least in most modern versions of it, it's broken up into books and chapters, and then each chapter has a section. Right. And so each section itself is probably only... F- maybe four or five, maybe 10 minutes for the really long ones. So it it comes in these chunks. And the way that the institutes is written and laid out is it's written as an argument. And so each, each book has an overall theme and then each sec, each chapter has a subject, but within each subject is, you know, somewhere, usually it's three or four, sometimes it's more um, points that build an argument. So if you just read it one section at a time, you'll get through it in about a year and and you'll have a, a really kind of comprehensive look at the whole system of doctrine that Calvin articulated. And then that kind of crystallized and developed into the reform tradition, um, taking into account what we said earlier. So yeah, pick it up. I mean, you can get it free, uh, lots of places you can buy the, um, the, um, beverage version or the battles version battles is a little bit longer, but it's a little bit better of a translation. Um, but you can get both of them on Kindle for like 10 bucks. It's super right. cheap. Yeah, it's worth doing. It's such just a nice thing to have on your shelf for a time when you're going through something and you think, man, I wonder what Calvin says about this. Yeah, Because I agree with you in this, that especially Calvin, I think, was the best at systematizing this and making it, organizing it in a way that's approachable, uh, cogent, and super helpful. And that alone is worth just having as a resource. Even if you disagree with him, I would challenge anybody to read it and try to understand what he's saying and perhaps yeah. have some spirited dialogue either in your own mind or with somebody else. This is like the quintessential book club book right here, which by the way, like free affirmation, I'm seeing that because of so much is happening in our world with the having to be apart from one another. The book club is like surging and I'm so yeah. excited about that. People have book clubs everywhere. Yeah, it's great. So Jesse, what are you denying this week? All right. I've got an Easter hot take and I, oh, let me, I should probably just like give the caveat up front uh, by way of distinguishing that 
this may totally be a soapbox. So I actually don't know. We didn't discuss this ahead of time. Um, and that doesn't actually need to be said because we never discuss anything ahead of time. But uh, I have a pretty strong and growing conviction on something around Easter. And it's a little bit more contemporary. It's maybe not quite a hot take because we've kind of thrown down on the Easter thing before. But this is maybe in a particular vein that we haven't discussed. And that is, so this time of year, with what's going on in our world right now, most congregations, most people of God are meeting in some kind of virtual remote sense. And there's been a lot of talk because of this, because of where the calendar is falling, that we need to do something. We, like the general evangelicals, need to like do something special. We can't let Easter go by. We need to do something incredible and it needs to happen in this virtual environment. And I've kind of been throwing this idea out along with others that says, why? Like, why don't we just wait to quote unquote celebrate Easter until we're all back together? If that's July, August, December, why not? If it's so important, just wait to celebrate it. And I've been surprised. Some of that has met with a lot of resistance and I can't understand the resistance because this goes back to something we said before where, you know, going to what Martin Luther said, like every Lord's day has a little bit of Easter in it. And so what I guess I'm kind of railing or denying against is the fact that Easter, it's not a man-made holiday, but it's the idea of assigning a particular Lord's day to celebrate Easter in whatever magnitude you do is absolutely something that comes from man. And therefore, because of that, I don't understand why we're all so stressed about what we do on Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. So now it's up to you to talk me off the cliff and make me realize that this is not that big a deal as I'm making it. I will do no such thing, brother. (laughs) So it's funny because, you know, like everybody's kind of commenting that they're like losing track in this this weird social isolation world that we live in. They're losing track of time like the normal markers that we have to mark out our days and our time and what time of day it is, what day of the week it is, we're losing that. But I think we're also losing track of like where on the calendar we are. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, your sister came downstairs just before we started church this morning and said, happy Palm Sunday. And I went, oh yeah, (laughs) like I totally (laughs) forgot that it was Palm Sunday. And what's funny is for some people that's associated with the fact that we're in this weird like time warp where we don't remember what day of the week it is and what month it is. Right. But I had the exact same experience at Ash Wednesday where it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's this week, isn't it? So I- I'm totally with you. You know, it's funny because like the first really, really big controversy in the church was actually over which week do we celebrate Easter on? Exactly. So, so this isn't like a this is one of the few kind of like man-made holiday kinds of things that's really, really ancient. This understanding that the resurrection of Christ is such a special, unique, central feature of the Christian religion, more so than any, almost any other element of Christian redemptive history is the resurrection of Christ. It's literally what changed everything that we should celebrate it every week, but we should celebrate in a special way. I I resonate with that a little bit, but the fact that like people were being called heretics because they thought they should wait, you know, like the Eastern Orthodox celebrated a little bit later or like Christmas they do later, like that is just insane to me. And some of the early church fathers were like, wait a second, you guys, like, are we really going to call people heretics because they want to celebrate Easter on a different week? Right. And, and I, I'm totally with you, man. Like, uh, it's interesting because Christians, um, Christians have this thirst for symbolism and meaning in everything. And what, what I think is funny, this actually goes back to what I was saying about Calvin is one of the main points that he makes about the, this urge to use images is that we're not satisfied exactly. with the spiritual worship, right. the, the plain unadorned spiritual worship right. that God demands. And I think this desire, like one of the things I've been hearing is like, oh, you know what? We should, even if this coronavirus thing hasn't died down, we should still get together for Easter because, you know, it shows our faith in the resurrection. And mm. I'm like, that's really dumb. Yeah. Like that's a really <laughs> dumb idea. Because, you know, either either everyone's going to get sick and die and then you can really show your faith in the resurrection in, in a much more practical way, or you're investing all this symbolism in things that the Bible doesn't invest symbolism in. Right. And, you know, I've heard like, well, we're all in this tomb of social isolation. And when we come out <laughs> together on Easter, oh, man, it's no. going to be a resurrection for oh, our gathering. And no. I'm like, but that's nowhere found in scripture. That symbolism is not there at all. There's almost nothing in scripture that that directs us in any sense other than baptism to associate symbolism with the resurrection of Christ apart from the resurrection of Christ 
and baptism. Like those are the two big things that 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 fact points to and, and to the eschatological reality of our own resurrection. And when we delude when we delude that uh, that eschatological hope, which we point to in our baptism, we look forward to every week when we gather in the Lord's prayer or in the Lord's uh, day and that we uh, sing about and celebrate when we delude that with all this other symbolism, instead of celebrating the resurrection, we're actually making it less significant. I yes. Think. Yeah. That's exactly you, man. This is why we do a podcast together. That's exactly my thought because yeah. I'm actually thinking, what if one of the beautiful things about this very tragic and filled time, full of anxiety and worry is if God is giving his people the opportunity to explain that Easter Sunday is not like a particular Lord's day that actually the reflection and appropriation of Easter by evangelicals is more about like taking a day that's just been random, not randomly, but more or less arbitrarily assigned and trying to make it somehow special. And instead forcing us back into the fact that every Lord's day is special and is celebratory and is, as should be as big in our minds and our worship as Easter is. So I actually think there's all this latent potential for pastors to say, we're not going to do anything because we don't need to do anything. We're going to stay the course and we're going to make sure that our spiritual act of worship is filled with joy and celebration. And that expression will be somewhat subdued in the current environment. But when we get back together, whenever that is, that's when we can really celebrate that God has brought us back together, that God is in the midst of his church, that God wants his church to be gathered physically. So, I just am not understanding like the push here. I really am not. And I actually think it's a disservice to the church to try to create or manufacture some kind of experience on all Easter Sundays, as we talked about before, but especially in this environment, just wait. I would love to see pastors say like, we'll acknowledge that that's what the calendar says, but we're going to provide spiritual insight into what it is we're actually doing on that particular Sunday so that it infuses our worship with a new sense of energy and passion and love so that we can carry that forward into the year. Like I see this as like equal opportunities for like latent potential for education and to really accelerate and bring in a new sense for why it is that we gather and that on every Lord's day resurrection should be part of what we're talking about and how we're thinking. And like, it should frame at least in part, always the way in which we come to church in the gathering and the way in which yeah. we prepare ourselves to acknowledge that we have not only God who created us and is superintending over all things that we just talked about, but is also the savior of all things. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, so I'm, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty fired up about this. So I just, I think there's like so much swirling right now around the concept of Easter and how we're going to somehow manifest that. And there's so much like superimposed and exogenous pressure that I'm really, I'm already over it. I I just want to say like, we should just honestly forget about Easter this year with respect to the calendar. I'm I'm like, by way of again, comporting with our theme, full disclosure, I am pro-resurrection, like very (laughs) pro-resurrection. So we should always be celebrating that. But I'm, I'm saying exactly, I think what you are, which is let's elevate every Lord's day as opposed to pushing down all the rest of them that are outside of Easter. You know, one other thought that just crossed my mind Easter and Christmas are kind of like the two times of year that that many churches have some sort of public testimony, like some sort of actual public proclamation, not just the preaching on the Lord's Day, but some sort of visible presence in the community itself. And I'm wondering if it could be in part that during this time where we're not able to gather uh, physically, churches are sort of sensing the fact that we don't have a real tangible physical presence in the community anymore. And so they're wanting to emphasize Easter as that physical, tangible presence. But the reality of that is, I think maybe you just need to have a physical, tangible presence (laughs) the rest of the year. Like maybe the fact that you gather on the Lord's day every Sunday should already be manifest to your community. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I bet it's probably a little different for every community, but but maybe there should be some sort of knowledge in your community that this particular building or this particular group of people, something is different in the way that they live their lives, particularly on the Lord's Day. I think that might be part of why there's this impulse right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. I just see that there's, I think, an incredible opportunity where perhaps God himself is forcing us to reconcile with the purity of worship. Kind of like what you're saying. It actually, this is all related to what Calvin wrote. This idea that we need to come to grips with why it is that we gather in the Lord's day and what it is that are the elements of worship versus like the essential nature of worship. 
And I think that actually this time apart is forcing many at least to contend with those two things and to provide some distinction and to distinguish yeah. among them. So I think it actually is, I want to say helpful. I, I, it's not still not ideal, like still throw out the stamp, like not real church. Even with that said, I think there's something here that we don't want to lose the opportunity uh, that I yeah. think God has given us to really sort through that. And yeah. I just think how pastor, I actually think, let me say this strongly. I think how your pastor treats these next couple of weeks is going to be somewhat watershed with trying to understand how they understand worship. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. You just lead right into my denial. Like, like we planned it, but we honestly, we didn't, we really didn't. <laughs> well, sorry, so, so now I'm curious, hit me with your denial. So this is a little bit out there. Um, so we had less land fear on the reformed uh, brotherhood a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that has been getting less in a little bit of, I don't want to say hot water, but maybe like hot tub water, like, like it's, it's tepid water. It's not, it's not pleasant is he's been very vocal about the fact that this plague, I mean, like it's a plague across the whole world. He's been very vocal about the fact that he thinks this is clearly some kind of judgment from God. And there have been reactions across the spectrum, but one of the most vocal reactions is essentially, how dare you act like this is judgment? Do you think you're some kind of prophet or something? And, and you know, I'm not trying to call any particular specific person out there, people that I really respect who have blasted against him on this. Uh, if you were to have asked me maybe like a year ago, I probably would have been right there with them. And I don't know whether you're going to be on, on the same page with me or on this, but the, the response that I'm seeing of people saying like, this is utterly unreformed of you to, to say that this could be judgment of God is one of the most historically ignorant statements that I've heard in a long time. And, and here's why is that there's a long standing tradition within the reformed tradition, within the reformed camp. I'm talking, you know, classical confessional reformed theology to sort of read God's providence and to make educated, I don't want to say educated guesses, but to, to make educated assessments based right. on what God is doing in his acts of providence related to his general pleasure or displeasure towards the world. And, and yes. with all of the acknowledgements that, that we could be mistaken, we, we could be wrong. We don't want to be Job's counselors who, who tried to draw a one-to-one -one correlation the more specific we're getting about this in terms of individual people, the more likely we are to run into problems where we're speaking out of turn. But if you go to the original directory of public worship, which was published alongside the Westminster Confession, right? So it's not it's not necessarily a confessional document, but it, it's it it comes out in that same body of documents that kind of reflect the thinking of the Westminster divines. Right. There's a section here that's called concerning visitation of the sick. So we're talking about specific individuals. And I want to say here, here's a quote. He says, he may, he being the pastor, he may from the consideration of the present sickness, instruct him out of scripture that diseases come not by chance or by distempers of the body only. So they do come by that, but not only, but by the wise and orderly guidance of the good hand of God to every particular person smitten by them. And that whether it be laid upon him out of displeasure for sin. So they're acknowledging the fact that, that God does send sickness out of displeasure for sin. Sure. Right. So for us to say, no, no, God doesn't do that. It's practically Marcionite. Like we're saying like, well, the God of the old Testament sent plagues when he was displeased with Israel, but the new Testament God, he doesn't do that. That's a different, no, no, he doesn't do that. And then if you go just a little bit further, um, there's a section called concerning public solemn fasting. And it says when some great and notable judgments are either inflicted upon a people or apparently imminent or by some extraordinary provocations notoriously deserved, or as also when some special blessing is to be sought or obtained public solemn fasting, which is to continue the whole day is a duty that God expects from the nation or people. Well, if you read that, it's saying that we should, we not only can, but we should look at God's providence. And if we believe it to be God's judgment, we should not only you know, declare that we believe it to be God's judgment, but we should react to it in a day of solemn prayer and fasting, which if you look, a lot of the reformed communions across the country and the world are doing just that. Right. They're having these set aside days of prayer and fasting because these denominational bodies, the PCA, which is not by no means is the most conservative uh, reform body in Napark, 
they have a prayer day of prayer and fasting. So this idea that we cannot look at God's acts in history, whether it's contemporary current events like coronavirus or, you know, other things like that, we can't look at them and say this, this appears to be God's displeasure. That is totally historically ignorant of the way the reformed tradition has operated. Now, if you want to make an argument that, um, the reformed tradition is wrong in this, be my guest, right? Sola Scriptura, Semper Reformanda, all that stuff. Make your argument from scripture right. that God, God, uh, that God nowhere, per, uh, allows us to, uh, read his acts of providence and draw conclusions from them. Be my guest. But to say blanketly that this is not a reformed behavior is just historically ignorant. There's no way around it. Like everybody does it. Calvin does it. The Westminster divines do it. It's, it's present in the continental tradition. It's just everywhere. And I cannot think of any kind of event in recent history that has been more global and wide scale. I, I, I was actually talking to Les about this in a private message. And what I said is, this is as wide scale and as global as the curse on the Tower of Babel. Right. Like, that's what we're talking about. This is as wide, as widely spread and almost universal as the flood. So for us to look at this worldwide situation that we're all under, where this plague is sweeping across the world, and we we can do nothing to stop it except to hide in our homes. Like, that's the reality of it. We're hiding in our homes, trying not to get sick, and that's the best that we have right now. To say that that's not judgment or potentially judgment, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying that this is potentially judgment, either like biblically or like you said, following in the tradition of the Reformed you know, theological faith, because the bottom line is we understand that God does exert his judgment throughout all of time in lots of different ways. In fact, it would almost be, I think, incumbent upon the person making the argument to say that God isn't judging all the time in some right. particular way. Yeah. And I think the example of like, let's say the Tower of Babel, I actually wonder... So maybe I would, I think I agree with you. I think maybe like in terms of magnitude, there you have a full blown impact on a people group that's actually effective because all the people are gathered in one place. What I think it's even more remarkable about this is not only do you have a pervasive sense of sickness that this thing is communicable and it's all over the entire globe and that there's no running away from it. And of course it doesn't depend on your socioeconomic status or your income. All of that is done away. There's a great leveling here in some ways, like, you know, the valleys are being filled and the mountains are being brought down low with respect to our health. But even beyond that, the health issue is one thing. So here's, let me say it this way. Something I've been thinking about, and I think this is like quickly actually becoming the episode we're doing right now is that's fine. That, you know, I've really been blown away by how oftentimes when God judges a person or prunes a person or brings in some kind of exogenous influence by his own power for specific amount of uh, discipline or healing or growth, that it happens in a pronounced way. So it happens in one facet of light generally. And so right now, Sometimes one of those facets of life is just your general health. When our health is stripped away from us, I mean, it radically undoes us. It really makes us understand that we're contingent beings as opposed to just saying that we are. So we have that. And yet at the same time, the thing that's so dramatic about this is, and this might be different than the Tower of Babel, which is, I think just magnifies your argument. It makes it even more extreme, is that aside from the health, we have other bastions in our lives that we cling to for support and that kind of buttress the sense that we are in control or that we have some sense of stability. And so one of them is health. But when that's stripped away, we generally rely on, well, I have enough money to get the kind of resources that I need, or I still have my job, or I still have my freedom or independence. It's as if God is stripping all those away. And so everybody is being forced to react in a way that really brings out the essential part of who they are. So I'm like yeah. out of the abundance of the heart, everything comes. And now we're just all kind of like throwing up exactly who we are because everything has been stripped away. And whether you're a Christian or not, whether you are in, you know, South Africa or in the United States, everybody has to contend with not only what's happening to them, but how they react to what's happening to them. And so yeah. this is as much like an economic trial as it is an emotional trial, as it is a mental trial, as it is a health trial. And yeah. so I, I think it's really hard to make the case that God isn't bringing some kind of judgment into all of our lives even if it's just by means of a test of those who are faithful for whether or not they will choose joy, whether or not they will superintend the will of God in their lives by being obedient and humble and yielding, 
this is like a profound test. And so I think just to start with the health thing, there's great biblical grounds for this, right? Because I think the classic passage is in first Corinthians 11, when Paul is basically given the Corinthian church kind of saying to them, listen, you guys are really off the mark here. He talks about the Lord's supper in particular. And of course he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. So that's exclusively a representation of health and wellness, right? And some of you have died. And I think that part of what happens here is Christians, when they hear like what Les is saying, they immediately want to judge, jump to, well, Jesus also said, you know, like, why is this man blind? You know, his disciples question him. Was it because of something he did or his parents? And Jesus goes against that. I don't think what we're saying here is that everybody who gets sick is being judged. Yeah. I don't think that's what you're saying. And that's certainly not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God is doing a mighty work in our world right now of an unprecedented level that is settling out and leveling literally economic realities and people's health and their concern for their well-being and their freedom and their sense that they're in control. And so how is this not, how can we not interpret this in some way if we love God and we trust that he works actively in our world? How can we not but say there's somewhere in the midst of this judgment and discipline and discipleship and pruning. And while we don't want to be go into the detail of trying to parse out the individual application of that, I think writ large, the sooner we come to realize that this is who God is and what he does for us, the sooner we come to a place where we can be obedient and loving and serve him in the midst of all this and also search ourselves to see what it is that God has for us to learn. That was like a really, how long did I just talk right there? Because that seems like super long. (laughs) <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't, I don't know, but I do think this is becoming the episode we're doing now. Yeah, let's, let's just we had do a, it. Let's just we do had it. a different topic, but let's just go. So, you know, as I think about this, the, the, the interesting thing about this, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I'm working on memorizing both Westminster and Heidelberg, and I don't have Heidelberg down, but there's this line, there's this phrase in the first question, the first answer to the Heidelberg question, Catechism that I think is really interesting. So, you know, it says... Um, uh, my only comfort in life and death is that I, both body and soul, both in life and death, belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Goes on to say, because he redeemed me from, or he fully satisfied for my sins, delivered right. me from the power of the devil. And then it says, um, and because of the fact that he cares for me, not a hair shall fall from my head unless it's by the will of my heavenly father. Right. And And this is what I think is so amazing is then it goes on to say, therefore... All things must be subservient to my salvation. For th- so for those who are in Christ, th- those who are among the elect, who are united to Christ and indwelled by his Holy Spirit, this is not judgment. We can say that confidently. Right, this is not right. judgment. We could say it's chastisement, and I want to draw a difference between the judgment of God and the chastisement of God. Some people don't draw that distinction. That's fine. This, this is not God punishing Christians for their sin. It could be God correcting them for their sin, but even that is subservient to the salvation of Christians. The the flip side of this, though, is that for those who are not elect, those who are not a member of God's church, who are not united to Christ by faith and dwell by the spirit, there's only two options, right? It's not salvific. It's not subservient to their salvation. So it's either common grace or it's judgment, right? It's either God showing uh, non-salvific mercy, non-salvific kindness or it's God showing judgment and condemnation. So which is it? I mean, for some people, it may end up being a common grace, right? This may be something that, that points them to, uh, to sort of the goodness in creation that, that, you know, we develop a, a vaccine or a cure or, you know, this, this actually could lead to medical advancements that we haven't even thought of. Right. Sure. You know, people talk about like antibacterial medication, antibiotics. There's no such thing really as an antiviral. I mean, there's things that suppress viruses, but there's nothing that we have that really cures a virus. But now we're doing research into viral suppression and viral cures that we haven't done before. So this could lead to some really interesting scientific advances. But there are also people who are dying and going to hell. This is judgment. Like like the, the distinction between judgment and non-judgment in, in some of these perspectives, I'm not even really sure like what that distinction is. Like, is is it random? Like, is God doing stuff randomly or does he have some sort of intentionality behind it? If he has intentionality, there's really only those two options. Either he's showing mercy and kindness, 
uh, which is undeserved. It's a form of grace. Uh, or he's showing condemnation and judgment. Well, which is it? Right. And so that line from the the Heidelberg Catechism, every time I, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism is hard to memorize because the answers are a lot longer than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And they're like complicated and they're, they're different. But it just blew my mind that it, it links this idea that God cares for us as his children, the elect. Therefore, nothing can happen to us apart from his will. Therefore, he assures us of eternal life. He makes us ready and willing, sincerely ready and willing to serve him. And all things must be subservient to my salvation. Right. Like that right there, you know, you look at um, the understanding of God's providence in the Westminster Catechism, that God's providence is his most holy, most wise, and most powerful preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all their actions, including coronavirus. And all of that is for his own glory and for the enjoyment of God's people of God. Like if you backtrack from yes. question 11 or so and just reverse engineer it all the way back to the first question, we have all things happen according to God's providence, which is his wise preserving and governing of all of his creatures and his actions, that all of those things flow out of his decrees, which are his eternal purpose, according to his, the counsel's will for his own glory. And you go backwards, we understand that from scripture, and all of that forwards to the chief end of man, which is to enjoy God, or is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's saying the exact same thing as Heidelberg 1. So this idea that this is not the judgment of God, I just can't see how it could be anything else. Um, you know, it, it may result in some common, it most likely will. It almost certainly will result it's, in some yeah, common exactly. grace blessings. It already is resulting in some right. common grace blessings. You know, um, Shane Morris, who is uh, a staff member at the Colson Center, and he uh, occasionally uh, jumps on the podcast uh, Breakpoint. He's actually a friend of mine from the internet. Like we go back a long ways. And one of the things that I saw him say on, on, um, on Facebook recently is that this virus, this seems to in some senses be rebooting humanity in a way like a lot of the things we've lost a lot of the things that we've lost sight of like physical exercise right. the, the need for interaction like embodied human experiences we're talking about a generation of people who even when they're in the same room with each other they're texting each other rather than right. actually talking to people there we're learning how important that embodied experience is that's a huge common grace blessing but it's also judgment on those who are far from christ and those who are far from his people because it, it can't be anything other than that Right. I'm not, I'm actually very distressed at how this all unfolded. In fact, how dare you, sir? How <laughs> dare you? Because I just picked up a brand new copy, brand spanking new version of the Heidelberg last week. Oh man. And I was going to quote from question one. And when you started, I was like, don't say it. Do not get into the subservient <laughs> thing. Cause that's my jam right now. And so funny. That was the thing. I read the first question. And it was like, I'd never heard that phrase before, uh, even though I, I'm familiar with the answer to the question. Yeah. And I was like, I'm being totally candid, completely undone by that. Yep, and it was too. both in light of the circumstance right now and totally separated from it. This idea that there is not a subjective, but an objective reality in which God says all things in this world will submit and yield to the salvation of my elect is yes. a statement of preach. epic proportion. Preach, brother, preach. It's it's epic. And so I think we have to examine everything that's... See, the problem is we are... I'll speak for myself. I'm a blind person. And so when my life is mostly okay and everything is going as I feel it ought to be, then these kind of theological realities sit way in the foreground. Yeah. And all that's happened is they've all been pushed up into the present and up in front of ourselves so that now we have to reconcile with what this all means. And I think it's a test of theology as it much, as much as it is about our understanding of how we live as Christians. I mean, those two are inexplicably connected, but the fact that we're saying, and I think this is biblical, that this is like, honestly, this is the kind of thing where, what is that? That's like Romans. I think I pulled it up here. Romans eight, right? This idea that like all things work for good. I was just going there. I listen, I'm stealing everything from you now because you just totally <laughs> stole that amazing, that amazing first question from me. This idea, we, we, you know, like how many times have you seen that on a placard, on a card, on a frame of some framed item, on a, a throw pillow? Like, yes, it's amazingly comforting. But the thing is, we treat it as if it's like a byword or a cliche. 
And yeah. we don't mostly mean it because when all things work together for good, that means that even things that seem unredeemable and especially harsh are the work of God for those yeah. whom he loves. And they, all those things submit to his plan into your personal salvation. Yeah. And so I, I think we're really being forced to say like, do we actually want to behave in a manner that comports with what we say we actually believe? And so this is, I think, the challenge for all of us right now. Yeah. And part of that is saying, can we come to terms with the fact that what sounds maybe unnecessarily harsh, but isn't because we know it's a biblical truth is to say that God is judging through this. Like, can we get there? Can we come to a place where, because we know God is loving, that there is no separation, that the simplicity of God demands that his loving kindness, his long suffering nature is also his judgment. And therefore yeah. everything altogether submits to him in a way that brings about the salvation of those who are elect and the judgment that are those who are not. And I guess I would submit that on January, I don't know, 26th, this same kind of thing was happening all over the world. Yeah. We just were not making ourselves aware of it. We're not elevating our acknowledgement of it. And yeah. so what's happening now has always been happening just to a different magnitude and a different awareness. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, Romans 10 to 8 and following is one of those, like, super cliche Calvinist verses, right? They, yes. They're all, they're all Calvinist verses, right? And Arminians <laughs> think that they're all Arminian verses. But, well played. But it's one of those, like, super cliche, this is the argument, you know, this is my all things work together for good card that I'm going to throw down in my little, my little card match with the Arminian. But, but when you read that passage... The comfort in um, the comfort in that passage is not just that all things work together for good. It's all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right. And, and here's here's the kicker. What is that purpose? Well, that purpose is so that they might be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus so that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Amen. And that brings us right back to question one of the Heidelberg Catechism and right back to question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that we are sanctified and glorified and justified and regenerated in all the other parts of the golden chain of salvation that occur in that passage for the purpose of bringing glory to Christ's name and so that we might be conformed to his image, right on. which there's no way, better way to enjoy God than to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. So like all of this, all of this that we're saying, this it's, it's so funny because like, I don't think we could have put together a more cohesive show if we tried to <laughs> than this, like, honestly, this one, like, uh, okay, here's a little, here's a little glimpse behind the curtain. I, I We'll probably talk about this in the future. So please don't skip this episode when you get there. What Jesse and I were planning on talking about today was the statement in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ says, not my will, but your will be done. Right. Right. And we probably would have ended up getting into a Christological conversation about the duality of wills, blah, blah, blah. Like good content. We would have gotten to it. That's not at all where we went. But the reality is like, this is a pressing concern in our world. This, this yes. is where we're at. And, you know, it's funny because this, this is going to sound like the most horrible judgmental thing that I'm ever going to say. The reality is the mainline churches where where community is is all there is right the ones that are now sort of pontificating about the fact that we don't really need to gather to have this community that we want they are going to crumble into dust and i am 100% fine with that like this is a this is a winnowing fork moment where god throws up the chaff in the air Right. That that's that's the metaphor in in the speeches about the winnowing fork and, and treading right. out the grain is that what would happen is they would tread out the grain with this big stone and the, the, the good part of the grain was heavy and the bad part of the grain was light. And so they would take this fork and they would throw it in the air and the stuff that came back down and wasn't blown away by the wind. That was the good stuff. And what's happening now is the entire visible church you know, the elect, the non-elect, the, the faithful congregations, the, the liberal congregations that don't even believe in the deity of Christ, the Roman Catholic church, the Eastern Orthodox, the entire visible church has been thrown in the air. And the ones that land back down are going to be the ones that are sitting here going, I don't understand it. 
And this really, really feels uncomfortable. And, and it's okay for us to say that this sucks right now, that this is this is a terrible time in our world. Like 2020 is is a bad year. Like we're only into March and it's a bad year already. Right. The churches that are saying we don't need to gather, those are the ones that are going to blow away like chaff. Those are the ones that when people look at the last two or three months of their life and the fact that they couldn't gather on Sunday morning didn't change anything in their life or their attitude. They're just going to be the ones that are saying, I guess I'm just not going to go back. So we're going to see a lot of churches fall. We're going to see a lot of churches fall apart of this. You know, I'm a deacon in the church. And one of the things that deacons think about is the funding and the financial elements of the church. Not that elders don't, but deacons are particularly aware of it because we are often the ones that are dispersing the funds. We're the ones that count the offering a lot of times. And one of the things that most congregants aren't thinking of is that some churches run month to month on their budgets. And so now we've had three weeks in a row where nobody has brought an offering to the church. Well, there are some churches that financially are not going to survive that. Right. And, and as, as hard as that is to say, that too is subservient to our salvation, right? There are people whose families are going to suffer because they are hungry, because they lost a job or because they um, they have been out of work. There are people who are going to lose income because people are going to die. That too happens according to the eternal purpose of God, according to the counsel's will for his own good and glory, you know, whatsoever comes to pass. Like this is a moment in the church where we're going to look at this and we're going to say, this was a watershed moment. This is going to go down in history books. Like I guarantee it as a historian, someone who's studied a lot of church history, there have been a lot of plagues in the church. Most of them don't make the books. This is a moment in church history where a lot of churches are going to fall apart. We're going to be left with a much smaller visible church out of this. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this is, again, it's like so cliche to say everything is unprecedented right now, but we say that because this is like, and that's not just respective of some kind of sense, like, well, it's different or more extreme than anything I've lived through. But if you look at it by way of comparison, the yeah. impact and, and think about just what we've covered in this episode, I believe that God is so, so much over all things and that nothing escapes him and that nothing is done without his premeditated planned will that even what we talked about with like the, the warring monkeys is somehow yeah. subservient to my salvation. Like somehow yes. there is a purpose in that and he uses all things. So he's not caught off guard by these a million, literally a million derivative impacts and influences from this one virus. All of this is for our good in some way. And so it is, I think incumbent upon the Christian to try to discern in so much as God allows and is reasonable to understand what he's doing in this time. And to understand what it really is and to apply labels that are appropriate and biblical. One of the things that I would recommend if people I think want to read and just get a better sense for those that verses in Romans 8 that you just talked about, it has to be, at least for me, an amazingly classic work by Thomas Watson, All Things for Good. That's again like a Puritan paperback. Yeah. You can look it up, All Things for Good. And I just want to read, kind of I guess as we draw this somewhat to a close, this amazing episode that we didn't plan for. <laughs> is is really one word, one, a couple sentences from the introduction that I think really kind of encapsulates what we've been talking about. Uh, by the way, on some versions of this book, the cover actually depicts somebody pouring out into a spoon like cough medicine. And I think that's actually <laughs> a brilliant metaphor for what we're talking about here. But here's what Watson writes. He says, this expression, he's referring to all things work together for good, refers to medicine. Several poisonous ingredients put together being tempered by the skill of the apothecary make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. So all God's providences being divinely tempered and sanctified do work together for the best of the saints. He who loves God and is called according to his purpose may rest assured that everything in the world shall be for his good. This is a Christian's cordial, which may make him warm. Yeah. Yeah. Man, God's providence is so amazing and so good. Like e even th this is going to sound like so bloated and like pig headed, but like even down to the providence of planning this episode that we had not planned. Right. Like God's providence is good and, and not in this weird charismatic sense, but I am 100% confident because of the place that our world is in, that there are people who needed to hear that all things that are happening in our world right now are subservient to their. So I, I needed to hear it. Me too. So I know that I know that at least one person was edified by it. And, you know, that's a touch point for the gospel. 
right? When you talk to your peers at work via Zoom, which is exactly how Jesse and I are talking to each other, or when you speak to that grocery person who has to go out of their house to make minimum wage and go out in this dangerous world, when you're able to tell them and you're able to say to them, you know, I know this is scary, but there's a God who's in control and he wants you to turn to him. And if you turn to him, if you, if you repent of your sins and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, then all of this, all of these terrible things that are happening, all of this fear that you've had in your life, all of the death you're hearing about in the news or the death that you're hearing about in your community, all of that is subservient to that moment when you turn to Christ in faith. That is the gospel. That not Amen. only does God save you from your sins, but that all things that happened in your life leading up to that moment and all things that happen afterward, they serve the purpose of making you more like his beloved son, making you more like God. Like there's no better news than that. There is no better news than that. And, and this is a moment in the church where we have an opportunity to share that with the world. And, and they're uniquely receptive to that. Everybody's asking the question, why is this happening? Why can't we stop it? Why, why is this terrible thing happening in our world? What am I going to do? What am I going to turn to for security? But we have the answer. So if we're not giving it to people, then what are we doing? Right. That's well said. I think that it's important to note that just because we know this truth doesn't mean that we either understand it in full or that it gives us some ability to see into what God is doing in every particular instance and why he is doing it. What it does do instead, though, is because we know that this is who God is and that he works all things together for good, it means that we actually can, in an objective way, have peace even when we do not understand everything that's happening. In other words, yes. we don't need to understand what the virus is doing to people. We don't understand all the nuances of how it's communicated. We don't need to understand what's going to happen to the economy or how quickly businesses are going to come back or what's going to happen to all of our churches. We don't need to have a full comprehensive or, or even an intellectual assent to those ideas. We don't need to be smart or intelligent people with respect to all the details. It does mean though, that even with all those unknowns, we may have a certain kind of peace that transcends our ability to understand. And so it's, in other words, we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's no argument that says here, well, just because I can't understand, I can't understand everything that's happening here. I can't really trust God that he's doing his own will and that he's good. The Bible tells us that God displays it to us. And even, and especially again, as we go back to full circle, this time of year, well, because of the calendar, we tend to think about the crucifixion that of all thing proves that God doesn't just feel a certain way about us. And he doesn't just express that or emote that in some kind of idea or ideology or statements, but he shows us in the giving of his son. And so if that, that would be enough alone to say, yes, all things work for good. So no matter how bad things seem to get, how convoluted, how gray, how messy, and how lacking beyond comprehension, we may trust without a shadow of a doubt that God loves us and that all things are in fact subservient to our salvation. Yeah. Yeah. There's no better way to end the show than that, Jesse. No well, this way. has been great, Tony. I'd say like this was the unintended, I would say serendipitous, predestined, providence <laughs> ordained, definitive episode on <laughs> salvation and all things for good and the subservient nature of all things to the elect whom God has ordained from before time. Yeah. So I, I think it's still definitive somewhere. And again, I want to note for like all of our long-term listeners, a certain lack of particular words that I could have used that I know not everybody's <laughs> paying attention to. And of course, which I'm also like super paying attention to. And you know what's funny is um, to kind of uh, wrap us up in a like more lighthearted note to some degree, even though we, our hearts, let me say this, our hearts should be light with what we just said. Yeah. I hope everybody feels like a lightheartedness there. Uh, I know I'm going to jump up from here with a greater, you know, kind of spring in my step. I'm also going to, not going to say a certain phrase that's related to the Kool-Aid man that I usually you're like not to gonna, say. You're not going to run through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am. I'm just not going to say it. Um, I, now I totally forgot <laughs> where I was going. <laughs> I think this is one episode, Jesse, where we can say that intent did not precede content. Oh, that's where it was. That's exactly oh, what it was. Okay. So boom, here's the roasted. thing. I, yes, I asked, I asked my wife about some of these phrases and I couched it in the kind of frame of, well, this is like maybe a lot of like podcaster 
Tony talk like that I use with him. And she was like, without skill of she was like, no, you say that a lot here too. <laughs> it's true. You do say it a lot. Even when we're not podcasting, I've always chalked it up to the fact that maybe whenever we're talking, we both sort of slip a little bit into podcasting mode. Just out we're of always habit. podcasting. It's we're always a, podcasting. Are there microphones we frequently, we frequently in the middle of a random conversation with each other will say, why aren't we recording this? <laughs> So one of these days I'm going to get one of those like GoPro life recorders that just records everything, but not there yet. No, we're, that's what people hopefully realize about us. Like I would love to meet brothers and sisters at some point at the, who listen to us because you're going to find that like, this is exactly who we are. Like I wish yeah. that part of this was staged because it would make me seem perhaps less nerdy and like a little bit more <laughs> chill in life. But this is what you get. Like, well, yeah. I would say 90% of the time when you and I are together and I was going to say something like you and I have taken a lot of long walks on the beach. We have, but that sounds weird. It's true. In and the rain would, sometimes. Yeah. 90% of the time we're in the midst of a conversation and we say like, yeah, we really should have recorded this because it probably would have been interesting to somebody else as well, or just be funny for it to yeah. be recorded for posterity's sake. Yeah. Funny story before we go. So this is just a glimpse at the reality of the relationship that Jesse and I share. So when I was getting ready to propose to, we talk about long beaches, <laughs> long walks on the beach. I was getting ready to propose to uh, Jesse's sister. This story. And uh, we were going to, you know, we vacation at the time we were vacationing in Maine. Now we vacation on the Jersey shore. We, we go to this town called Saco, Maine. And this was my first year with uh, joining the family for the vacation. And so the first day we all went out and I, I kind of peeled off separately with Ashley's dad uh, and asked permission to propose. And there's a really funny story about how he left me hanging for a little while that we won't get into. But one of the things that I know about Ashley is that she looks up to her older brother quite a bit. And so um, she had made it clear to me uh, in our early courtship and then as things were getting more serious that uh, your approval would also be necessary uh, and and would be important for us to move forward in the relationship. So I had this whole grand plan about how I was going to do it. I was going to follow the same strategy. I was going to, you know, we're going to go out for this walk on the beach. We're going to peel off. And somewhere along the line, there was like this monsoon. But yes. we still decided we wanted to go out in, in the rain and walk the beach. So we made like we made like garbage bag uh, ponchos. ponchos. And it was like a hurricane out there. Yes. And I remember I was walking with Jesse and I turned to him and I said, you know, Jesse, I don't remember the exact phrase. I said, you know, Jesse, I had a long conversation with your dad earlier and I'd like to propose to your sister. And you kind of looked at me like, you're asking me this now in the middle of this rainstorm. Yes. Yep. And, and, and yeah, so it was funny that that's the story, but we have this whole long story about trash bag shepherds because of the way that our, uh, way that our little ponchos looked. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still going to appropriate that as a band name at some point. Trash, Trash bag shepherds, shepherds. But yeah. you are exactly accurate. I remember thinking at the time, cause here's, here's the other thing people should know. Like, it was like tumultuous. The reason why we made the, tra the trash bag shepherd approach was because it was raining like crazy. It was super windy. So like yeah. if you've ever been on the ocean when it's windy, it's actually not that pleasant because you can't hear anything. So yeah. I remember we're walking and everybody's just kind of like having fun because part of the whole joy of it was like, let's go do this ridiculous thing. We're going to put yeah. on <laughs> trash bags and we're going to go walk out in what is like crazy wind, probably like 15 to 20 miles an hour. Yeah. It's pouring rain. The rain is going sideways. It's pelting you in the eyes. This is just a fun, crazy thing. You actually can't spend any time with anybody out here because you can't actually hear anybody because the yep. wind is whipping and it's <laughs> whipping the trash bags that we're all wearing. So it sounds like, you know, if you've ever heard like a flag get it just getting destroyed in the wind, you yeah. can't hear anything about that fluttering. And so I remember thinking at the time, like you, you just kind of were like, Hey, so, and I remember thinking we're doing this right now. Like I, I can barely, like you're yelling, it, you're actually yeah, yelling at me. It wasn't what you so say. like, Hey, so, you know, I was thinking it was like, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, was what it was like. It was so, exactly like that. So it was, I, I, we need uh, to get the trash bag shepherds band together. We need to make an we album because it's an amazing name right there. We do. Well, Jesse, well, Tony, I, I think we've gone every direction we could in God's providence. All things for good. Right. So All until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.